my optimism comes from a couple things. I mean, first of all, just rejoining the global conversation through rejoining the Paris Agreement is a really hopeful sign. We need to be part of the global conversation on climate change. This is a global problem. We cannot do this only from government. We shouldn't do it only from government. We have limited resources. We have huge responsibilities, again, to make sure that the safety net is there for people who are going through this transition. So. One of the things we've done in this administration is to really focus on creating a mechanism through our infrastructure bank to de-risk private sector projects, to catalyze through loan guarantees and low interest loans, some of the things in the market that need to happen where we shouldn't be paying for it, where just, we just need to give a boost to the private sector. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Kate Gordon. Kate has spent the past two decades working at the intersection of climate change, energy policy, and economic development. She was appointed director of the Governor's Office of Planning and Research and senior advisor to the Governor on Climate by Governor Gavin Newsom on January 7, 2019. Prior to being appointed OPR director, she was a founding director of the Risky Business Project, which quantified the economic risks of climate change. She also has served in senior leadership positions at several nonpartisan think tanks, including the Paulson Institute, the Center for Next Generation, the Center for American Progress, and as a non-resident fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Kate, welcome to the podcast. There are a few people I know who can communicate the economics, science, politics, and policy of climate change as well as you. And I've been blessed by the opportunity to work with you. So today I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So let's start at the beginning with your upbringing. You grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and Palo Alto, California. What were some of the early influences and who were some of the early mentors who impacted your career? It's a, a great question. And I'm sort of unusual in the climate space in that I came to it not through environmental sciences. I came to it through economic development and planning. And that was really because I moved around a ton as a kid. My mom lived in Madison, Wisconsin. My dad lived in Palo Alto, California. They decided to have joint custody, so we moved every six months in between the two states. And my mom was actually a social worker and and had been trained as a teacher, and my dad's a law professor at Stanford. And so kind of the different socioeconomic approaches of the two of them, the different types of neighborhoods, I'm going from the very industrial Midwest, which you know well, to where I walk past a coal plant, you know, on campus on my way to school, to Palo Alto, which is very suburban and very you know, different was a big education for me. So I think I got a a real sense early on of kind of different people have different types of economies, different types of access, um, real sense of equity issues, which meant a lot to me. I went to college in Connecticut and that's where I started doing a lot of hiking and camping. And so got really involved in just the natural world when I was in college, but really coming into that from this sort of economic uh, background. And, you know, all through it, my mom, um, who died this past year, was a huge influence on me. Just uh, she'd been trained as an anthropologist at some point in her career. And she always taught me, you got to start where people are. You have to listen to people in the room. You have to figure out what they need before you start talking about what you need. And that's been a huge influence on me. 
Yeah, and I know that uh, your mom, like you, liked the natural world, right? Because I know you spent time with her, you know, over the years yeah. in, the, in the natural world. She was a big and, skier and, and snowshoeer. Wanting to protect it. Yeah, 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 yeah. She was really, really into uh, just being active and being outdoors. And so that's been a big influence for me. So now let's talk about the transition. So you started with a focus on development and so on. So how did you come to develop your dedication to climate policy? Because boy, are you dedicated. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I think a lot of people's careers, it wasn't a linear path, but the main thing that happened was that I got an opportunity to work at the University of Wisconsin. After I graduated from law school, I got a joint degree in law and planning actually from Berkeley. And after I graduated, I practiced law for a while. And then I got an opportunity to work at an institute at University of Wisconsin called Center on Wisconsin Strategy or COWS is the acronym, um, (laughs) which is apt. And at COWS, what um, Joel Rogers who rents it was doing was he was starting a project to look at the economic development and workforce development implications of clean energy. At the time, in the early 2000s, we were, of course, importing a whole bunch of energy. We're importing natural gas, we're importing oil. And the project was about sort of how do we build out a domestic renewable energy system that also creates economic opportunity. So this was what became uh, an organization called the Apollo Alliance, very early days of that. And it was, frankly, it was the first sort of green jobs organization. It was the first organization that brought together, you know, the labor piece, the community piece, the business piece, and the environment piece all together, and ultimately became the place where we helped develop the green jobs platform that both Obama actually and McCain ultimately used in their, in their platforms. And so it was new to me. You know, I was coming into energy without a lot of background, but I kind of came at it again from the like, what does this look like to communities? What does it look like to business? And got into renewable energy and efficiency that way. And kind of naturally, if you work on a renewable energy and efficiency, you start to understand the implications of those issues for climate. I mean, we were starting to see more and more impacts from climate change. We were starting to see more and more of a focus politically. And I think coming in with that experience on the jobs and energy side was really important to kind of figuring out, you know, not just why is this a problem, but what do we do about it? Absolutely. And, you know, you and I first crossed paths and I first became a big Kate Gordon fan when we worked together along with Mike Bloomberg, Tom Steyer, George Schultz, Bob Rubin, and a lot of others, academics, engineers, others on this risky business project which was a groundbreaking study. You know, Americans are increasingly waking up to the economic risks of climate change, but few recognize the full scope and severity of the economic risks. And I remember just spending a lot of time with you when we were figuring out how to communicate those results. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about what do Americans need to know about how climate change will affect their economic security and their pocketbooks. Yeah, I mean, it was such an honor to work on that project with you. So thank you. I consider you one of my mentors because of that work. So I just, I should have said that earlier. You know, let me start with why we did it. And I think it's important story because at the time, and this was, I think around 2013, 2014, that we started thinking about this project, climate, we had gone through, again, the sort of green jobs phase. We'd gone through, and I was in DC at the Center for American Progress during the Waxman-Markey bill and that whole conversation and ultimately the failure of that bill in Congress. And still at that time, climate change was really looked at by advocates, by the media, by a lot of politicians as a science problem 
with a policy solution. So really not an economic issue, right? Really over here in the, let's look at the climate science, you know, inconvenient truth is the articulation of the problem and Waxman-Markey bill is the articulation of the answer, right? So both of those things are pretty inaccessible to most people. And I remember Tom Steyer had gone to, who I was working for at the time, had gone to a Department of Treasury dinner, which you may even have been at. And he came back and he said, the whole dinner had been his focus on all of these macroeconomic issues affecting the American economy. People were talking about inflation, people were talking about cyber terrorism, people were talking about all these issues. And a dessert came around and Tom sort of raised his hand and said, you know, nobody's mentioned climate change. Like, why have we not talked about this major existential threat? And he described it as people sort of patted him on the head and were like, that's so nice that you care about the environment. Moving on to the real issues at the grown-ups table. So he came back from that and said, how do we make climate change an issue at the grown-ups table? That was really kind of the call to action. I'm going to interrupt you there because it couldn't have been while I was at Treasury. Because (laughs) when I was at Treasury, we set up the Office of the Environment where we really made it a big focus to start to look at climate change. So that must have been... It was after your time. It was after your time. I agree. I mean, and so he came back and we started brainstorming on how to do that. And we looked at the Stern report from England, which had been this big major report from the former head of the Bank of England, Nicholas Stern, to look at the macro, like the global macro economic impacts of climate. And we ultimately, with your help and with Mike Bloomberg's help, three of you as co-chairs, I think came to the decision that in the United States to make this a compelling story, to really talk about the impacts of climate, we had to go much more specific than that. We had to talk about how do climate impacts affect individual regions, individual communities, individual sectors of the economy, and really dig into the data and have not only a story to tell, but to have a set of data that could be actionable at the end of the day for the finance and business leaders that we were targeting. And I think that's really important, just background, because it was so important that we were specific in targeting that audience with that report. And that also included having people like you as messengers um, and Bob Rubin and George Schultz and Greg Page from Cargill as key messengers who are really credible on the business and finance implications. So ultimately, I think the key with risky business is is the data is what what we ended up finding out through the research, which was, as you know, 20 terabytes of data went into that project. It was a very research intensive project. And what we learned and is increasingly being talked about by the financial community, I think in part because of that project, frankly, is that the physical impacts of climate change not only are here now, but they are predictable at a very granular level by sector, by region. And that there are sectors that will be dramatically impacted. We looked at, as you know, agriculture, commodity agriculture is a big one. Corn in particular, very sensitive to heat. So looking at extreme heat data from the science, backcasting like we did to say, what have extreme heat waves looked like in Southern Iowa in the past? What can we project this will look like into the future? We see you know, yield declines that are pretty significant in parts of the country that depend on these commodities, right? I thought one of the big important impacts from that study was the impact on energy demand. We don't always think about the fact that heat, again, not only reduces the ability of plants to produce energy because they have to be cooled down constantly, at least traditional power plants. It also reduces the amount of electrons going through transmission lines. We get more line loss when it's hotter and people use more air conditioning when it's hotter. So you got high demand, lower supply, increase your cost. That kind of thing, it takes the science and we brought it down to a very 
personal level for people and for people making these kinds of decisions, which I think made a huge difference. And what, what I learned, you know, a lot, not only about the results, but communication. Yep. Because I realized there really are very few people that deny climate altogether. Yep. And so if you're going to meet with a bunch of farmers in the Midwest or the Farm Bureau and you're going to say, we've got a big problem and you're a big cause of it and we want you to pay a tax, you know, they're deniers. Yeah. But, but if you say the weather is changing, you know, and the way it's going, it just may be that in 30 years, Iowa, Indiana and Illinois won't be in a temperate zone. They'll be an arid zone and you won't be growing beans and corn. And let's talk about it. You know, they're all ears. They want to meet you in the middle. So Absolutely. It, it, I mean, Greg Page used to say, right, that we were bringing people from denial to discussion, which I think is a great way to characterize it, yeah, um, it, it opening the door. And just as an example of that, you know, as you know, one of the things I think Risky Business was incredibly influential. I don't think people know the extent to which you and Bob Rubin and Tom and others did these meetings afterward with business leaders to talk through the results. And one of the things that I remember was a set of meetings that I had, I think, ultimately with um, power producers in Idaho. So with a number of businesses in Idaho, not the most liberal state in the world. And Idaho Power you know, the big utility in Idaho, we sat down with them and we were talking through the results and we're talking about, they're very dependent on hydropower. And we're talking about the variability of rainfall in Idaho based on climate impacts and what that would do to their ability to count on hydropower as their major source. And we had this conversation, we used the data, we had people from the Idaho business community talking about it. And at the end of the day, Idaho Power came to the decision that they needed to back up their hydropower with a more reliable system and they went to renewables because of the information that we had provided about the impacts of heat, the impacts of water availability. That's a specific organizational change that came about because of climate science. But, you know, it's just a different way to approach it. Yep, it sure is. So I wanted to talk about different ways of approaching things. Here now in California, on the front lines of implementing policy in a state which has been massively impacted by climate change. Now, to many Americans, California is the left coast, right? Perceived as this ultra-liberal, progressive place on the West Coast. The implication is that it may not be an appropriate model for the rest of the country. What's your reaction to this view? How applicable is California's experience for other parts of the country? California is, and I think you really experience this when you work for the state, it is a massive economy. We are the fifth largest economy in the world. We have 10% of the US population, but also more relevant to your question, we are an incredibly diverse economy. I'm not sure people realize that. People, as you said, we tend to look at us and look at Silicon Valley and Hollywood. We actually are a major oil producer, oil and gas producer. We're a major agricultural producer. We're a timber producer. We have, by percentage, more manufacturing than any other state in the United States. We have just myriad different regional economies in the state. So I actually think that we're an interesting microcosm of the United States. We also have, frankly, a complex political rural-urban split, just like the rest of the country. So we're dealing with the politics, the diversity of the economy. We're dealing with the fact that we're actually a fossil fuel producer and how we have to think that through as we're looking at climate goals. At the same time, we have had in place since 2006, 
a set of climate policies that are now just operating reality for the state of California. We have a cap and trade system that's economy wide. We have a low carbon fuel standard, which requires fuel sold in the state to be lower carbon, 10% lower than average. We have a clean energy standard that requires 100% clean by 2045. So we have a set of policies that if you do business in California, you have to work under them. That means that we are the place to look when it comes to how this stuff actually operates on the ground, how you go from goal setting to implementation. That's what we're dealing with right now. We are deep into it, into what does the transition look like for the timber industry as we start to think about more sustainable wood products and we have to clear our forests because of wildfire. What is Kern County, which is heavily dependent on property taxes and jobs in the oil sector, look like as we're starting to look at a transition away from fossil fuels? Those are the questions we're grappling with now, and they're ultimately what everybody's going to be grappling with you know, in the coming decades. So I think that we're a microcosm, frankly, and a place to look for both the opportunities and the barriers of doing this kind of transition. And the only other thing I'd say is that on top of all that, as you said in your question, we have every climate impact you can think of. We have everything. We have fires, floods, glacial melt in the Sierras. We have extreme heat. We have mudslides. I mean, we have everything. Sea level rise. Big droughts. <laughs> and big droughts. And we're heading into another one right now, I'm sorry to say. So that also means, and something else that I, I think I said in a conversation we had earlier, but I don't think people are paying enough attention to this. We are spending so much of our state budget on emergency response right now, and not just on the immediate response, but on the safety net programs that come along with it, on relocation, on food stamps, on shelter. That We spent a billion dollars on firefighting this past year in 2020. That was $650 million above our budgeted cost for firefighting. That's a big deal to us, and it's a big deal to the country. The more that we spend on response and not resilience, the more we're going to have to shift all of our government budgets toward essentially just doing that, toward like basic response and not toward either mitigation or adaptation on climate change. You know, that was another one of my big takeaways from risky business and thinking through the implications. Because... So many of the people that uh, have opposed to some of the you know, solutions for combating climate change are people that distrust government yeah. and big government and don't want to see government spending. And yet, when you look at climate change, it poses a big fiscal problem. It does. Because whenever there is a climate disaster, whether it's a drought, or a wildfire or a flood, whatever it is, it hits one area, one group of people disproportionately, and the government comes in and we all pay, and that's the role of government. So basically, by doing nothing, we are, you know, or by keeping flawed policies in place that have the wrong incentives, we're building up a big uh, fiscal cost. Now, I would like you You gave us a bit about this, but take us inside the climate discussions. What do they sound like from the governor's office in Sacramento? What types of issues are you dealing with and how are you dealing with them? Yeah, there's a there's a lot. You know, the first thing the governor asked me to do when I came in, and I I have sort of several hats that I wear in the governor's office. I run actually a cabinet level agency called the Office of Planning and Research, which is a long range planning, mostly land use planning and climate resilience office within the governor's office. And then I'm also the governor's senior advisor on climate. 
And so I wear a couple hats and I came into my job. And one of the first things he said to me was, I want to get a better understanding, not only of the goals we've set on climate, but how we're doing on meeting them. Governor Newsom is very implementation oriented in general, very action oriented. And so we kind of sat down and did the analysis of all the goals of which there are many in California, and then all of the um, progress. And what we found was that in the areas where we have the biggest immediate issues, the most emissions or the biggest climate impacts, we are not making progress as fast as we need to. And that's what's defined our priorities. So the big ones for us, transportation is number one. It's in California. California has a lot of cars. We have 40 million people, we have 27 million cars. People drive a lot. (laughs) It's a big state. And uh, so transportation emissions are 40% of our emissions. And then if you count oil extraction and refining, it's about 51%. Dealing with transportation has been a big priority. And you've probably seen the governor's done a couple of big executive orders. One last year, actually, that's very in the vein of risky business. Last year, he did an executive order asking our uh, transportation agency, which is a big asset owner, of the whole transportation system to actually align its investments and its asset decisions more consistently with our climate policies. So he essentially asked transportation to reduce climate risk and to reduce emissions through decision-making, which has been really interesting to see that play out. This year, he did a big executive order that got a lot of attention calling for us to stop selling internal combustion vehicles by uh, light duty vehicles by 2035. So transportation has been a huge part of our conversation. The other big area that you'll definitely appreciate, Hank, that we've focused on because we haven't made enough progress is the role of our natural and working lands in our climate policy. California is amazingly, I just learned this, we have developed 6% of the land in California to live on. The rest of it is either protected, a lot of it's federal, 47% of it's federal. Agricultural land is about 25%. We have a lot of land that's not developed for urban development. So 6% is developed. We have an enormous amount of land It needs to be working for us in terms of our climate goals. We need to be sequestering carbon through good land management practices. We need to be making sure that we're not doing a ton of urban sprawls, which in and of itself creates a lot of carbon emissions. So lands have been a big factor, and the governor just did an executive order calling for 30% of our land and coastal water to be preserved by 2030. That's something that the Biden administration is looking at, too. So the role of our lands, the role of transportation are probably the two biggest priorities. Underneath that, we're doing a lot on carbon removal, which we can talk more about because we've recognized as have all the scientists in the world, essentially, that you can't get to our climate goals without actual removal of carbon from the atmosphere. Some of that's land-based, but we're also exploring, you know, engineered options like direct air capture in California. And then finally, back to the beginning of our conversation, we're doing a lot on climate finance. So the governor has said, look, we're a major asset owner and investor as a state. We need to be best in class on this like we are on other climate issues. He's asked us to explore climate disclosure, for instance, as a state and see if we can make progress and be leaders there. And how much of your time are you spending thinking about fires and uh, how to prevent them and dealing with them and so on? A lot of my time is spent thinking about fires. My first day in my job was the day the PGD declared bankruptcy. And then that week, the ratings agencies downgraded our utilities. And my office was actually responsible. So just for our listeners, that's a big electric utility. Sorry, it's actually the largest land area in the country in terms of utility land areas. And they were held liable for starting the fire, right? They were. They Electric lines cause not a disproportionate number of the fires. California has always had fires, just to be clear. I mean, we've always had fires. It's part of the ecosystem. 
But what's happened is that we've got more and more development into fire prone areas. So 11 million people in California live in what's called the wildland urban interface, which is that area which is high fire risk between urban development and forest land. Just to put that in context, all of South Australia has one and a half million people. We have 11 million people in our fire risk areas. So when people sort of try to compare, it's hard to compare us with anyone else. The other issue is that, of course, when we expand development into an area, we require that they get power. So we put up power lines at all these places. So what we've had increasingly are very severe fires caused by downed power lines. That's because of high wind speeds, which are climate related, combined with dry vegetation from dry years, which then we get a lot of vegetation in the wet years, and then it dries out, and then it becomes a huge fire hazard. So we are a tinderbox, honestly, in California, and it were tinderbox with 11 million people living in it. That's a major priority for all of us, for the governor, for everybody. My office deals with both climate resilience and land use and planning. So we're right at the center of this conversation. And we just put out technical advisories to local governments on how to do better fire planning for existing communities. We're starting the conversation about future development, which is very challenging conversation politically, as you can imagine. And uh, my office also ran the catastrophic wildfire commission that had to deal with the kind of fallout from the bankruptcy and the insurance industries essentially backing away from California on fire insurance. So there's going to be a lot of money, I imagine, spent in figuring out how to do some of the land management and clearing brush away and thinning the forests and so on. We are spending a lot. The budget, actually, the governor's budget that just came out has a billion dollar wildfire package that we're hoping the legislature will pass as an early action agenda that is focused on a combination of things. It's the forest management, which is a giant part of our challenge. Our forests just have an enormous amount of underbrush and we need to manage them better. But it also has, importantly, I think, to our economic conversation, a section that's about economic development in these areas. We as a state are taking a huge amount of forest material out of the forest. It's mostly non-merchantable. It's not saw logs, right? It's like underbrush. The question is, what can we do with it? What can we do with those small trees? What can we do with that underbrush? in terms of economic development for those communities, which are pretty decimated. I mean, these are communities that lost the timber industry to a large extent because of globalization in the timber industry 20 years ago, still don't have jobs, mostly dependent on tourism, which has been just, as you know, killed by COVID. So it's been incredibly hard for them. So we're looking at how can we develop advanced wood products, advanced you know, biofuels, advanced cross-laminated timber, industry in these parts of the state using this stuff that the state's already getting out of the forest. Right now, we're taking it out of the forest. Some of it's sitting in piles on the side of the road and it's burning. I mean, we're either burning it or it's spontaneously combusting because it's sitting there for so long. So we have an imperative from an economic perspective and from a climate perspective to do something about it. This is an issue that's faced in so many parts of the world. So I do think what California learns and does here can be a useful model. Now, I want to move to something else that you and I have talked about a lot, is when you talk about how to mitigate, so how to to reduce emissions, do some of the things that need to be done. And there's this debate between, you know, when is it more effective to use market mechanisms, like putting a price on carbon, or when is a regulatory approach more effective? Now, you see that, you know, in California, where you have market mechanisms, where you, you know, to someone like me, you're drowning in regulation, right? So, so talk a little bit about what you see, the good, the bad regulation and market mechanisms and how, how you see that. 
Yeah, we have sort of everything in California. So <laughs> people tend to focus on our cap and trade system, which is the biggest one in the world. So I'm not surprised. It's, it's the largest in terms of being economy wide. And that makes sense. It's a piece of the puzzle. It's not the only piece of the puzzle. We also have a couple of regulations that go along with it. Again, the low carbon fuel standard, I would argue, has been incredibly impactful in California, actually, in changing the market on fuel. And then we also have this clean energy standard. And we have a bunch of other things. California Air Resources Board, famously run by Mary Nichols for years, is the center of power on mitigation. And it's a regulatory agency that is now doing a huge amount of work in this space that goes beyond regulation. And so that's interesting. I mean, we could talk about that for hours, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. I think the, the mix of things, we also have very strong building codes, which is partly why California's building sector is not our biggest emitter, is because we have very good building codes from the 70s, actually, from Jerry Brown's first term as governor. And we have strong standards on industrial development. We just have a set of, of standards. So I think we have a lot of consistency in terms of when you come into the California market, you kind of know what you're getting into. I think the mix of things has been important. I want to say two things about it because they're relevant to the current kind of debates in Washington. One is our cap and trade program creates a fund that we can then spend on things like innovation and on some of the um, equity issues that are experienced when we put these regulations into place. Our greenhouse gas reduction fund is entirely funded by our cap and trade program. And it's critically important, I have to say, from a policy perspective, from a political perspective, having that fund separate from the regular budget, it can't be poached by the general fund. It has to be spent on issues that bring down emissions or that address the impacts of our regulation. That's why we've been able to give clean car vouchers, EV vouchers for people who buy electric vehicles. That's why we're able to do our big vehicle retirement and replacement program to let, get people out of old cars and into newer efficient cars. That's where we pay for our major uh, transit projects. It's an incredibly important thing to have that money. So you and I have talked about this a lot in the past, but when people say we should return 100% of the money from any, any carbon tax to people as individuals, I say, I don't think that's the right way to go politically. I think you lose the ability to do a lot of what you need to do, the government needs to do to help ease the transition because the transition is rocky. The other thing that I wanted to say about our system is where I think we haven't done a great job historically in California, but that Governor Newsom's really focused on, and you heard me talk a little bit about this, is catalyzing the private sector. We cannot do this only from government. We shouldn't do it only from government. We have limited resources. We have huge responsibilities, again, to make sure that the safety net is there for people who are going through this transition. So one of the things we've done in this administration is to really focus on creating a mechanism through our infrastructure bank to de-risk private sector projects, to catalyze through loan guarantees and low interest loans, some of the things in the market that need to happen where we shouldn't be paying for it, where just, we just need to give a boost to the private sector. I think that's kind of new to California, honestly. Like we just haven't done it that much in the climate space. We've been very dependent on regulation, but we cannot do this all through regulation. It's not politically smart. And ultimately, we're in a moment where business recovery is top of mind. We need to be creating a business climate that makes sense in this state. So what can leaders at the federal level learn from some of the actions and experiences, things that have worked, things that haven't worked from California and other state and local governments? I'm excited that the Biden administration is already taking some of California's lessons. I mean, California uh, is, is definitely top of mind, I think, again, because we've been doing this stuff for a long time. A couple things that I think are, are exciting. 
and can transfer. One is this whole of government approach on climate, which President Biden has, of course, taken on. Uh, we have been doing in California, making sure that climate is not an issue confined to environmental regulatory agencies and the environmental agencies in general, but really having a more holistic approach that gets to what you and I just talked about, which is that this will affect every sector of the economy and every region and our international relationships and our position globally in terms of the economy. So this is a large set of issues. I think of it sometimes like globalization, like you don't do economic work without thinking about the impact of globalization. You shouldn't do it without thinking of the impact of climate change. The idea that this is kind of getting into the other agencies and that that the president has prioritized that with his appointments is really important. And I would argue it's something that we have done in California pretty successfully. Letting states lead, so setting a floor at the federal level, but letting states have flexibility over that, I think is really, really important. If there's one thing that that I learned actually really through risky business, and we used to talk about this all the time, is these impacts are different in different places. It's extremely local. The way that impacts are felt is extremely granular and local. It's different depending on what kind of business you run. It's different depending on where you live. We can't have one set of things for every state in this country. It's a very diverse country, geographically, economically. You know, what we do in California on some of our power sector work doesn't actually work in a state like Illinois, where you're from, where you have a heavy dependence on coal and you've got very, very cold winters. It's a very different situation than we have in California. So let's talk about setting a floor and having flexibility above that. I think that's something that we've done in California because we're so big that our individual regions are essentially sub-state you know, sub actors, right? We have to do our policies in a way that works across the different regions of California in much the same way I think the federal government will have to do. So those are two big ones. And then, you know, I see this happening already with the Biden administration, but taking this approach that if you're leading on climate, it also means that as a government, with assets and investments, you need to lead, you know, you need to do best in class asset ownership and management and investment. I think that's also true. So that's something we're working through, but we're actually really excited to work with the Biden administration on it because I don't think anybody wants to set 50 different disclosure standards across 50 states. I think we need to have coherence in this space. Yeah, amen to that. <laughs> now, uh, I want to move. So most discussions that center on climate change these days are doom and gloom. You know, and there's plenty to worry about. Give our listeners a case for climate optimism. What gives you hope about the future? You know, a lot of things do. And I think you can't work on this issue day by day, as you know, well, without having some hope. You've got to be optimistic because otherwise it's you could just like put your head under a pillow and hide. My optimism comes from a couple of things. I mean, first of all, just rejoining the global conversation through rejoining the Paris Agreement is a really hopeful sign. We need to be part of the global conversation on climate change. This is a global problem. At the end of the day, carbon emissions, unlike a lot of other pollutants, don't respect boundaries, right? They are global. By nature, the solution has got to be global. The governance systems, particularly the governance systems that can support those developing nations or island nations that have the biggest impacts from climate change, we got to figure that out globally. That's an all world problem. So I think rejoining that conversation is so important. I would argue the UN is not the only place we should be doing it. I know you agree with this. I think we got to be making this an issue at the major economies forum. It has to become an issue across our global engagement. But I think rejoining Paris is the first step. So I feel really good about that. I also, and I said this earlier, but you know, my approach on climate change has always been a very interdisciplinary, integrated approach. I tend to be somebody who sees that sort of every action has an equal and opposite reaction, and we've got to think through the reactions and we got to think through the implications. 
And I, I have hope and optimism from the fact that that seems to be coming, that seems to be where everybody's coming to, that we are in a moment of not just how do we get on stage and have the best goal and have the best sign on letter, right? And have the best, you know, shiny event, but how do we actually do this? How do we actually do the transition? How do we actually dig in and get it done? And I see people starting to talk about that. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but this is my personality. Like taking the big issue and breaking it down into operational pieces is what gives me hope. It's what keeps me going. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's increasingly obvious that this is a major long-term global problem and we're going to need to rewire the global economy. And that's going to take trillions and trillions of dollars. There's going to be a lot, a big role for the private sector to play there. There's going to be, you know, attractive investment opportunities as a result of all of this. But it's a major, major, major risk. And uh, I think we've got to increasingly look at it as an opportunity to bring the world together. So, Kate, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. You know, I'm sure our listeners will find this very illuminating. You're a terrific communicator, and I, for one, am really grateful that you're working full-time on these issues. So, thank you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.